So Money episode 1074, The Fire Movement's Paula Pant, founder of Afford Anything. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think the challenge is simultaneously acknowledging the challenges of that come with wanting to improve your financial life, like simultaneously acknowledging those while not discouraging people. And also while not invalidating the success of people who have risen above the circumstances that they were born into. Welcome to So Money, everybody. How are you? Happy Monday, July 27th, 2020. This week, as it turns out, I have a number of interviews lined up with those who identify as members of the FIRE movement. That stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And the mission of the movement is to intensely save and invest, sometimes over half your income or more, so that you can retire sometime around the age of 40, maybe even sooner. Seems a little impossible right now. The movement is often associated with white men who have high-earning careers in software engineering or finance, Mr. Money Mustache, for example. And as a result, the saving and investing advice and the pursuit of fire can be found inapplicable to so many people. So this week, we're speaking to the minority members of the FIRE group that are making a huge impact, making the movement more diverse, more inclusive, more relevant. Today, we invite Paula Pant, a prominent leader of the FIRE movement and an enthusiastic investor with a soft spot for spreadsheets, she says. Paula is founder of Afford Anything, a personal finance and financial independence website, and she hosts the award-winning Afford Anything podcast. Her core belief is that you can afford anything, but not everything. Paula survived COVID-19 earlier this spring. So our conversation begins there and we dive into so much, including her financial belief systems in this unusual time. Have they changed? Here's Paula Pant. Paula Pant, welcome to So Money, my friend. It is so nice to be reconnected. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. You are not dead, despite uh, <laughs> what the press has said. That was, I mean, come on, that must have been weird. That must have been that, a weird moment. <laughs> that was crazy. All right, so, so backstory for anyone who has not heard the story is I, I had COVID-19. Um, I was one of the, fr- I, I was ahead of the curve. I was one of the first to get infected in early March. So I, I was getting coronavirus before it was cool. Um, but in the, in the process of like struggling with COVID-19 and recovering, and I, I was posting on social media about it and apparently somebody, some, for somehow, um, got the impression that I was dead. And so then they created this thread on Reddit called RIP Paula Pant. And it was actually very sweet. They were eulogizing me. It was a very nice eulogy. But um, but I, I got a Google alert that just said RIP Paula Pant. And I was like, wow, I, I guess I've really made it now that I have my first celebrity like death rumor. 
<laughs> You've definitely made it, you know, to be able to experience your death while you're alive. I think that's <laughs> not an experience a lot of us can say we've gone through. But you jumped the gun for me. I wanted to ask about your COVID-19 experience. I'm so glad that you are on the other side of things, although it was quite a horrific experience, despite being classified as mild or moderate. You're a healthy woman. You got this despite, I was reading your kind of play-by-play on your blog. Everybody go check out Afford Anything. You've gotten, you you logged this day by day. And even in the run-up to contracting it, you were practicing what your Las Vegas neighbors were calling like overcautiousness. You know, you weren't going to the birthday party at the bar. You were staying home. You were sheltering in place. So first of all, when you, were you pissed that you got it? I would have been like, <laughs> what the hell? So I was, I was definitely by the standard of all of my friends, I was the most cautious person. Um, and, and that's because both of my parents are 79 years old. My dad has cancer. My mom has diabetes. And so being the daughter of two people who are in very high risk groups, um, I took it very, I took it incredibly seriously from the beginning. And so March 13 was the first day. That was the day that I declined uh, an invite to a birthday party at a bar in order to stay home. And then March 14th was my first day of full precautionary quarantine. And it was on day nine of quarantine that I started getting symptoms. So, I mean, honestly, my my biggest thought was, thank God I took a precautionary quarantine because like if I got, if I, if I became symptomatic on day nine of quarantine, that means that I must have been infected between 10 to 14 days prior to the symptoms beginning. And, and what that means is that I was quarantined for the majority of time that I was pre-symptomatic. So I think that there's a pretty good likelihood that I did not infect anybody else. Mm. Um, and that's a huge relief because I, I've, I've read news articles about other coronavirus survivors who, you know, in addition to dealing with all of the, the physical, um, you know, complications of having COVID-19, they also have to deal with the emotional guilt of potentially infecting others, particularly those of us who got sick in March when this was all new. Um, so yeah, so I'm just, I'm very, very grateful that I don't have to deal with the guilt of having infected anybody else. Mm. Wow. Do you know how you got it? I have no idea. So like I said, I must have gotten infected, uh, between 10 to 14 days prior to the onset of symptoms, because once I began quarantining, I did not leave my condo at all other than I did go to the doctor's office, but um, they were incredibly, that, that doctor was incredibly, incredibly cautious. You know, they took your temperature before they let you in. They only let two to three patients in the waiting room at a time. Every patient had to sit like in a different corner of the waiting room. I mean, we were 15, 20 feet apart from each other. Um, it was the do- the one time that I left the condo during my quarantine, which was to go to the doctor. It was uh, the most protected experience I've ever had. So I think it's fairly safe to say that I got infected between 10 to 14 days prior to symptom onset. And I can't think of anything special that I did. Mm-hmm. I went to the grocery store. I went to the gym. I might've gone to a gas station. I mean, I work from home. So um yeah, I, I think it was just the course of normal daily living. I traced all my contacts. I, I contacted every single person who I'd seen face to face in the 14 days prior to symptom onset, and not a single person had it that they were aware of. Wow. And so what is your 
thinking now, you know, I'm on the East Coast. We're in uh, phase three of a lot of the reopenings of commerce and business. Mm-hmm. Camps are back in the session and I was just walking downtown in Montclair and like Lululemon's open. I'm like, what? Like who really needs a tank top right now? Like just stay home. What's your advice given that we are in a phase right now where I feel like it's easy to forget mm-hmm. the horridness that was March, April. Uh, you experienced it. What's your advice to people who may be listening and thinking, oh, like we're in like a new era of this. That's a little bit more, a little quote unquote safer to go out. Yeah. So the the first thing that I would say, and this is especially a message that I would send out to anyone who's it, who's listening, who's in their twenties or thirties or or forties, um, don't assume that your relative youth is a get out of coronavirus free card. Don't assume that if you get it, you're going to be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. I, I have a lot of friends. One of my best friends constantly says that she's so flippant about it, and she's like. Pfft. Because she's very healthy. Um, you know, she works out constantly. She looks great. She's very fit. Um, and so because she's so healthy and because she's in her 30s, she believes that if she gets it, she'll be asymptomatic. So the first message that I would send out to particularly young people is do not make that assumption because it can, um, it, it, it can even for young people, it can be devastating. And, and you just never know. Yeah. It's a roll of the dice. Uh, the it is second, risky. yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the second thing that I would say is, when you go out, take, of course, all of the usual precautions: wear a mask, use hand sanitizer, wash your hands frequently, and if you live with um, your parents or your grandparents, as as a lot of people do, or if you come into contact with any. Uh, elderly people, that's in, that's especially the time to be extra cautious. So for example, um, one piece of advice that my doctor gave me, she said, you know, and I live alone, so I didn't have to do this, but she said, when you come into the house, um, you know, when you step through the front door, the first, if there is somebody else living in that home and you don't want to infect the person living in that home, the minute that you step through your front door, just strip off all your clothes right away. Um, put it in a plastic bag and and don't touch it again until it's been through the laundry on a hot cycle. You know, and it, it sounds a little bit ridiculous, like getting naked the minute you walk through the front door. But uh, but but that's the reality of it. Coronavirus could be on your clothing. It could be anywhere on your person. And, and especially if you live with a high risk individual, you you it goes back to the guilt of infecting somebody else. You really don't want to have to bear the burden of that guilt for the rest of your life. Right now we're learning that it's not contracted on surfaces as much as it is mm-hmm. like on um, respiratory. Respiratory. Yeah. But then again, like we're learning as we're going. So right. what do you feel like we should just follow the most the latest guidelines or we should always be as cautious as we were back in March? Well, I think particularly if you live with or come into contact with anyone who is a high risk individual, be as cautious as you were in March, if not more so. Um, and, you know, anecdotally, I mean, I've just, I've heard horror stories. There was a, I, I'm Nepalese American, um, and there was a, a Nepalese family living in uh, the Bay Area in, um, up around San Francisco. And the parents, um, it, it, the 
elderly parents of the man who was living there wanted to move in with their son, you know, and the son was maybe in his 30s. And so um, the son moved to a larger apartment so that his parents could live with him, hired movers to conduct the move. And one of the movers had coronavirus, infected his father, and his father ended up dying. And so you you hear these, these just these horror stories. Uh, and, and, and I think, and that's why particularly if you are coming into contact with anyone who is over the age of 60, 65, 70, um, or anybody who has any type of chronic conditions, being more cautious than necessary could spare you from, you know, the unthinkable. It's just always important to remind people that even a mild case of this is, can be devastating, not only physically, but emotionally and financially, which pivots right. us to money, a topic <laughs> we both love to talk about. You're the creator and host of the popular podcast, Afford Anything, and the blog, Afford Anything. And mm-hmm. how have your financial perspectives, if at all, changed since personally experiencing COVID, but also now living in a recession that is tied to a pandemic, do you, are you giving different advice these days? Are you following different advice these days? I would say first and foremost, I think what this recession has brought to light is that the classic principles of personal finance are as important, if not more important than ever. And so that that tried and true advice that we often keep hearing, save an emergency fund and don't invest your emergency fund in the stock market, keep it in cash, keep it in something safe and that's liquid and easily accessible. You know, a lot of people, when when there's a bull run and times feel great, a lot of people want to fight that. And we, from 2009 until March of 2020, you know, we had an 11-year bull run. And that was a time when a lot of people were tempted to raid their emergency fund and, and put that money in the market because they just uh, saw the stock market as a high-yield savings account. And so the the sudden drop in the market that we saw in March and the fact that we are living in a recession, I think, is a reminder that that the classic principles of reduce or eliminate the amount of debt that you carry, save an emergency fund that is at least three to six months worth of your expenses, if not more, um, you know, live significantly below your means. Remember that flexibility is the ultimate security. Like those classic principles are really coming uh, to the forefront right now. But, you know, even when you compare this recession to the recession of 2009, this one feels a lot hairier in the (laughs) sense that it's not you know, contained to a couple of industries like real estate and finance. This Mm -hmm. is anyone's guess as far as how long it could take the pain, how, how, how great the pain could be. And everyone is talking about the financial cliff, which is that a lot of the stimulus benefits will be expiring soon, including that $600 additional unemployment check every week for those who qualified. And so, Yes, I agree that the tried and true financial principles, if you were doing those things, you're probably in much better shape now than those who were not. But how long can that really sustain you? If you lost your job and Mm -hmm. you did have a six-month rainy day, well, you may be unemployed for a year at this point. It's anyone's guess. So for someone who's in it, who Mm -hmm. maybe even done all the right things, but is thinking about the next six to nine months, how can I, and I know you did a podcast on how to sort of end the year stronger than when you started. What's your advice? It's a twofold approach. Part of it is reducing your expenses as much as possible. The other part is looking for 
creative ways that you could earn extra money, at least temporarily. Um, in terms of earning extra money, at least temporarily. So one thing that's really coming to light right now is a lot of parents are tasked with simultaneously watching their children while also trying to work from home. So there are a good number of opportunities out there for babysitting. Um, and, and of course, you want to be cautious and maybe limit it to only one family. Uh, you know, if, of course, you want to be cautious in terms of like how how many people you're exposed to so that you reduce your risk of contracting COVID-19. But, you know, that's just one example of the type of side hustle, if you will, um, you know, type of opportunity, something that you can do while you're looking for your next job, like your, the next job within your field. One of the challenges of COVID-19 is that the plan B that a lot of people had, um, those plan Bs no longer are viable. I've known a lot of people who have said, well, you know, if everything falls apart, I'll just go to Thailand where the cost of living is a lot cheaper. Or, you know, I'll just go to, you know, they'll, they'll talk about geo-arbitrage. Well, in an era of coronavirus, that's no longer really a viable option. Um, similarly, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, if, if everything goes to, to hell in a handbasket, I'll move back in with my parents. And again, when there's a risk that you could be, in, you could be the person who infects them, that's no longer an option. And so I think because those options for cost reduction are now taken off the table, it becomes particularly important if, if you need the money to, to sort of put your pride aside and do things that, um, that you normally would not have done, you know, like babysitting or like um, selling masks on Etsy or like doing yard work for people. Uh, anything that will just that will get you that extra $600 a week that the government won't give you once that unemployment supplement runs out. You know, if, if you can just make that extra $600 a week once that added enhanced benefit goes away, um, that coupled with your ordinary unemployment benefits could hopefully keep you in a good place. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that you have built wealth, one of the ways that you're talking to people right now about how to increase their wealth is real estate. Tell me the, why anyone with a right mind should be investing in real estate right now. I mean, I bought a house in COVID, but that was my primary home. I'm not sure if I even had the capacity to invest in real estate right now. Like, where would I even, what's a good market? <laughs> well, so the good news for anybody who wants to buy a, a home right now is that there are not very many buyers out there. And that makes this a particularly good time to be a buyer um, in, in many markets. You know, I, I can't, of course, there's no such thing as the national market. There's only many local real estate markets, but in a lot of local markets, the, the, the volume of both sellers and buyers has reduced, but the volume of buyers has shrunk more than the volume of sellers. So in terms of the, you know, supply demand, there are more people selling than there are buyers buying, which puts buyers in a strong position to negotiate and get homes for far cheaper than they otherwise would have or negotiate other concessions like the seller covers closing costs or the seller handles a bunch of repairs that are needed prior to the closing of the transaction. Um, you know, that wasn't possible a year or two ago in a lot of markets when sellers were getting multiple offers on the first day of a listing. 
So the scarcity yeah. is helping some buyers, not in some areas though, like, you know, here where I live, there's still multiple bids per home. You're moving to New York City. <laughs> um, <laughs> was this something that was decided upon as a result of what you experienced in the spring? I know you're kind of nomadic. You like to bounce mm-hmm. around. Why did you choose New York? So I've wanted to live in New York ever since high school, ever since I was maybe 14 or 15, uh, that this has always been a bucket list dream, a bucket list idea. And in April of 2019, I, I, I knew that I wanted to leave Las Vegas. Um, I was getting divorced and I wanted to leave the city that my husband, my now ex-husband and I had lived in. Um, it had just too many painful memories. So I knew that I wanted to leave. I knew I wanted to go somewhere. Uh, And I narrowed it down to either Austin, Texas, which is where my two best friends live, or New York City, which has always been on my bucket list. And in April of 2019, I got an Airbnb in Austin, Texas, and I spent a month there. And by the end of that month, my conclusion was, hey, I really enjoy this place, but and I love the fact that my best friends are here, but it's just not me. And so it was at the end of April 2019 that I made the decision that I would move to New York. And at that time, I thought, I'll move in a year. So my intended move date was April 2020. And of course, we all know what happened in March and April of 2020. Um, you know, not only I don't, did know, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It was just normal, normal life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nothing remarkable about those months. And yet you still wanted to come to New York, despite the fact that it's like the epicenter of COVID. The economy here is TBD as far as like, I mean, I really love New York and my heart's still in New York City, even though I've moved uh, across state lines. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it's going to get its groove back. What are you looking most forward to as a New Yorker? Well, I've been here for a total of four days now. Uh, as of the time that we are recording this. Honestly, being an outsider um, who is unaccustomed to crowds, the fact that the city is so emptied out makes the transition a little bit easier. I think, you know, I've visited New York many times before, and I think it would be overwhelming to move here and, you know, have jam-packed subways and um, bustling streets and, and cars flying by and honking at you. you know, the fact that it's so quiet, so serene, um, it, it makes it easier for somebody who who has never lived in a major city before. Um, I mean, not a major city like this, you know? Yeah, it's it, spoiling it, you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can sit anywhere <laughs> you want on the subway. That never happens. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so I think so. I think that helps quite a bit. Um, I love being outdoors, and so just the the basics of taking a walk through Central Park, going to Hudson River Park, those types of outdoor activities. Um, you know, I've always loved that, and that doesn't you know require any museums to be open. Um, it's just, it's just the glory of the outdoors. Have you thought about the outlook for our industry, personal finance in terms of how it's going to change and those who are giving the advice, who will, who will be standing, uh, this time next year in terms of the popular voices or the platforms that people will be gravitating more towards? Is it going to be podcasts? Is it going to be books? Is it going to be blogs? Like you have all of those things. What are you doubling down on? I I think a lot will depend on once the nation reopens, um, will as many people be 
working in offices, will, you know, will people be commuting again? If the number of commuters remains roughly what it was, close to what it was pre-COVID-19, pre-pandemic, then I think podcasts will remain strong. But I think one of the big threats to the podcasting industry is that if people aren't commuting, then fewer people have the the environmental cue to listen to podcasts. I mean, you know, some people listen to podcasts when they're at home, when they're cooking, when they're uh, out on a jog. But there's definitely a, a strong contingent of people whose only time to listen to audio is during a commute. And so if that goes away, then, um, you know, I don't know if listenership, listenership would shrink forever. Mm-hmm. There would they those listeners would probably eventually be replaced by other people who find time to listen to podcasts while doing other activities. But I do think that at least for a while, the podcast industry will, um, you know, be affected by the absence of the the listeners who stopped listening once the commute went away. Yeah, the so, routines. Maybe that. Yeah. Maybe the job market and the podcast listening market is gonna. <laughs> there's gonna be <laughs> some sort of weird correlation. Like, you know, the unemployment number is reducing, and podcasts are doing better. I wonder. If there's a way to look <laughs> yeah. at it that through that lens. We are in the midst of also a Black Lives movement, Black Lives Matters movement, and you, as being someone of a person of color, like, what do you think is important for the personal finance community to address or things that need to change or shift? You know, there's been some remarks that talking about Black Lives Matter can be political or, you know, talking about race and money can be alienating. But what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Well, so first of all, there's a distinction between a thing being political, meaning it concerns the public affairs of a nation, versus a thing being partisan, meaning it divides along party lines. A thing can be political without being partisan. And my hope is that anti-racism and the Black Lives Matter movement will not be partisan. My hope is that this will be an issue that everybody can support because to me, it just seems basic. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be an anti-racist or learn how to be an anti-racist? And having our platforms is a great vehicle to having those important discussions, right? Especially the intersection mm -hmm. of money and race. Exactly, exactly. And that is a discussion that that has not been had very much. I mean, I'm thinking about the financial independence community. Mostly white guys, mostly. (laughs) Really, I mean, it's it's dominated by white men and some white women. Exactly, exactly. And even the advice that's often given, um, you know, people will talk about don't spend money on hair services. But to say that to a a blonde white woman versus saying that to an African-American woman, I mean, we're like there's, there are different, it's a different context. It's a different conversation. By saying certain things, you're not talking to certain groups of people, which we never really thought of that going in, you know, that even I, for example, I've learned that, Hey, if I can do it, so can you. Mm. It's sort of this throwaway comment, which, you know, the, my intention in ever saying that was like to, encourage people to say, hey, like I had some adversity growing up and I got to where I am. So it should be, you should be able to do it too. But my adversity is not 
someone else's adversity. And the level of my adversity is nowhere near the level of adversity that someone who has black skin in this country. Mm -hmm. That for me was really a change that I want to make in my own communicating. I I think the challenge is simultaneously acknowledging the challenges of, um, you know, that, that come with wanting to improve your financial life, like simultaneously acknowledging those while not discouraging people and also while not invalidating the success of people who have risen above um, the circumstances that they were born into. So I I think the challenge in terms of talking about it is, you know, oftentimes, like I, I certainly would never want to discuss any issue in such a way that it makes the listener feel like, well, the game is so rigged, it's so stacked against me that I shouldn't even bother trying. You right. know, that's the last thing that I want to do. So, so I, so I think, I think that's the thing that uh, that everyone in the personal finance community, I, I would hope that they work on is is acknowledging the the reality and acknowledging the reality that we live in a society where uh, the rich get richer and some people are born with inherent privileges as a result of their skin color, um, their religion, their national origin, uh, you know, acknowledging that while simultaneously not relaying the message that, like that, a, that you cannot succeed because of X, Y, and Z factors. Right. It's also bringing to light, Paula, that it's not just the onus is not and should not just be on the person, but on the system and the and the policies too, right? So I have some predictions going for us, some optimistic predictions, which is that we acknowledge that, yes, there are certain things that as an individual you can and should do to preserve your money, to grow your money, but that it would also help to have the support and the acknowledgement and the systems in place that would kind of create a level playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's important that we don't just make these blanket statements and and hold our elected leaders to task more, to say like, mm-hmm. you need to create more balance, more level playing field, more access for everybody if we really want to create not just equality, but equity for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one, one thing that I learned, um, in, in the last month or two as you know, Farnoosh, you and I are both from immigrant families. Um, I was, I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal. And so being, being from an immigrant family, when it came to any instance in which I had to quote unquote act white or, or anglicize myself. Um, you know, the name on my birth certificate is Pragya, but I've anglicized my name into Paula because it's just, it's easier. Um, it's easier to conduct business. It's, it's just easier to get around when, when, when I introduce myself as Paula rather than Pragya. As I've made those, those types of decisions throughout my life, um, I've always come at it from the perspective of almost from the perspective of I'm a guest here. You know, the United States didn't have to let me in, but they let me in. And so I've always been felt fairly willing to adapt to what I saw as, you know, mainstream U.S. culture, largely because 
I came from this mindset of I, I wasn't even born on this soil, um, but they, they, the U.S. let me in. They allowed me to get naturalized as a citizen. And so, um, you know, it's it's up to me to integrate with this society. You're playing by but, their rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it wasn't until the last month or two that I really stopped to think about, wait a minute, what would the experience be like if you were born here and your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents were all born in the United States and yet you're still a marginalized community? Like I, I had n- never truly reflected on that before. And um, and, th- and that hit me once I stopped and once I, I really thought about it, like that hit me hard in, in terms of, wow, that's. That is, I, I, I just, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. Yeah. It's enraging. Uh, yes. Yeah. To say the least. And not only your great ancestry lived here, was born here, but built the country. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's that also to reckon with. Paula Pant, it's been so nice to reconnect and learn about your experience and also like where your head's at with everything that's going on in the world. I really respect your views on not just money, but the world. So I'm just happy also that you're well and back at it. And once things are quote unquote, you know, safe again, would love to, would love to have a toast to your health in person. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. I will. One day I will see you. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll sit six feet across apart from the each river. Other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll sit six feet apart and, uh, and, and toast some champagne and, you know, drink it through a mask. Looking forward. To learn more about Paula, to join her newsletter and subscribe to her podcast, visit affordanything.com. Coming up on Wednesday, a married couple in the FIRE movement, Amon and Christina Browning of Our Rich Journey. They've retired at ages 39 and 41, respectively, having quit their federal government jobs and have moved to Portugal with their two daughters. You don't want to miss that one. Stay tuned. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. Money.